You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Our scripture reading this morning for the sermon text is Genesis 1-1, Genesis 1-26-31, and Genesis 3-22-24. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And those that, eh, and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Genesis 3.22-24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat to work and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. All right, you can be seated, kids. If you are kindergarten and under, you can go with with Alyssa, and she will take you upstairs for some funtivities. The rest of you, if you would find a Bible, there might be one under the chair. If you brought one with you, turn it on, whatever. Um, it would be helpful, I think, if you have a Bible to be able to follow along. We'll be in Genesis, um, and uh, Genesis 1-1, which should be page 1-ish. So hopefully that's easy to find for you and we'll kind of jump around a little bit. All right, have any of you ever been in the situation where you're teaching someone a new game? Had some friends over, you get the board game out or whatever, and you're like, well, we want to teach you how to play code names or settlers or whatever it is. And you, what you have to do before you start playing the game is get a sense of what the rules are. You have to explain to them uh, what the main characters are, what the cards do, how, what the strategy is, what the point of the game is, the rules, the strategy and, uh, or else you're just totally lost. If everyone's just doing whatever it is that they want to do, the game won't work, it won't be fun, it just isn't going to work unless you understand the ground rules and sort of how the whole setting is supposed to work out and what everybody's role is in that. Uh, I remember uh, a few years ago, the boys wanted me to teach them how to play chess. So they brought the chessboard out and I was showing them where the pieces go and how you start and what each, piece is, what each of the pieces can do. And so as they were learning, I I would let them have a few moves in and kind of explain what they're doing, and then I would just totally wipe them out, just totally take all of their pieces, and uh, they would get defeated. And uh, but they were learning, and each time, uh, you know, we would kind of tighten it up a little bit as they gained more skill and sort of figured out this piece can do this, but it can't do that. And oh, did you see this coming? And you lost focus on this side, and. (laughs) 
they were picking it up and their little sister, who was just a toddler, she wanted to play. So she sat down and we set it up and everything. And I just thought, well, this will be fun. Let's just see what she does. She knows that she knew that you had to take the king. She knew that was the, the case. So the boys were watching and we were playing and she just starts moving pieces wherever she wants. And I was just letting her. I was following the rules and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden she just moves a piece over and takes my king. She's like, dad, I win. And she looks at her brothers going, I don't know why you think this is so hard. Like this, dad's not that good at this. And so she just moved the pieces wherever she wanted. And the boys, we just got such a laugh out of that. It was so much fun to kind of see her just whatever. And if you know Lydia, you understand that that totally fits her. She uh, lives to the beat of her own drum. And so, uh, but, but the idea being is that the game doesn't really work unless you understand what the rules are, what the point is, and what you can and can't do. There needs to be ground rules and what your abilities, the limitations, opportunities. You've got to have context in order to understand how to make sense of what you're doing. And that's true in anything. That's true in a game. That's true in life. And really, Genesis 1 through 11 is the introduction to everything. That's the name of our message today, is the introduction to everything. Uh, This is an introduction to how the game is played. What is life, reality, uh, existence? How does it work? How did it start? How How do you function within it? How, does, how do you win at it? Um, and so that's really what Genesis is all about. That's why the book is called Genesis. Is it, it lays the groundwork. It gives the backstory to everything. It really is an introduction to everything. And we've looked at that from the beginning of February last year until May. We took a break in the summer and looked at the kingdom parables of Jesus. But now we're going to resume our study in chapter 12 next week um, of our journey through Genesis. But before we do, I wanted to take this Sunday and just get you caught up. My kids told me, this is kind of like The Mandalorian, isn't it? Where you watch the next episode, but the first three or four minutes kind of catch you up on where the plot twist is and where the, where the cliffhanger is and where we're at in the story. The story won't make sense unless you know what comes before. And that's what this is. This is the prologue. This is the introduction. This is the rules of the game. This is the terms of how all of existence works. And so we want to just cover these first 11 chapters again, very quickly in one message, to get you caught up to speed So then we resume the story with Abraham in chapter 12. You'll know where we are and what we've been. And if you want to go deep into these, you can look at the series of messages that we did. They're on our website, rgcrc.org. And you can see where we drilled down deep into each of the passages that we'll just fly over today. So what I want to do today is remind you of where we've been and to summarize the basic framework that the Bible lays out for existence, for the game of life for how things work in this world. This is the Bible claims to be from God, and it claims to uh, be authoritatively explaining, be word from God about uh, how existence that he created works. And then I'm going to call you to come play and live and exist in the way that the game was meant to be played, the way that human life and existence was meant to be played. So the introduction to everything in three words. I want to summarize everything I'm going to say in three words, which is God humanity, and war. God, humanity, and war. So that's going to be the three words that I have chosen to kind of summarize what I think the basic ground rules of existence are. Why are we where we are? How do we work? How does this work? How do we win? How does life work? So first of all, let's start with the word God. Genesis 1.1, if you look at that in your own Bibles there, Genesis 1.1, how the Word of God opens up, how the book of Genesis starts is with these words. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's seven words in Hebrew. It's very poetically written here at the very beginning, but it wants to go ahead and set the framework for everything. The very first sentence of the Bible is huge. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And so what we see there in this first probably two chapters really is that God is the creator of all things. There's an Elohim, a powerful one, a supreme one who was at the beginning already existing and is the source of all other things. We get that in the very first verse. We get two categories of being. There is the being that was at the beginning that's self-existent. And then there is the category of being of everything else. Everything else comes from this one being. Two categories of being, uncreated, timeless things, which would be God. There's only one in that category. And another category of created things, which is everything else you can think of. Angels, heaven, everything else is created. God alone is uncreated. So in the beginning, there is already something, a being, a personality, a God, an Elohim, a supreme one. And everything else that falls in the category of heavens and earth, spiritual and physical realm, is created by him and created for him. And so right out of the gate, we get the sense that the main character of the Bible of existence is God. God, a self-existent one. We learn six things about this God from this one verse. One is that he is eternal. At the beginning, he's already there. Eternal just means that he has no time at all. He's not time bound at all. You go back as far as you want. God is there. Go forward as far as you can imagine. God is there. He's outside of time. Does not exist within time. He's eternal. At the beginning, in the beginning, God is already there in all of his fullness. We also learn that God is sufficient. He can exist in and of himself. He needs nothing else to exist. In the beginning, before there was anything else, he was there and he was sufficient. He was complete. He's not dependent on anything else. Everything else in the created category is dependent on something. You need oxygen. You need air. You need food. Um, Everything needs something else to live, but God himself is sufficient in and of himself. All other things are dependent on other things, and ultimately all other things are dependent on God. We also learn that God is not just eternal and sufficient, but necessary. There is no other things without God, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created all things. And if you take God out, you take away all things. He is a necessary being by which all other things exist. This Genesis 1 is already laying the foundation of what we're to see about the world. He's eternal. He's sufficient. He's necessary. He's sovereign. He made things. Therefore, he's the boss of things. He reigns and rules over all things. He is sovereign. He is the king of all things. And we'll see that play out throughout the scriptures is that he is in charge. He makes the rules. It's his stuff. I mean, if my kids, if my daughter makes a drawing of, a, of something, if she wants to throw it away, she can. It's hers. If she wants to put it on the wall, she can. What, her, what someone else can't do is come in and take it in from her. It's hers. She can do with it what she wants. And God, since he made all things, he's in charge of it. He's king of it. He can do whatever he wants with what he's made. So he's sovereign. He's eternal, sufficient, necessary, sovereign. And then he's omnipotent. This being at the very beginning can create heavens and the earth. So he can do whatever he wants. He has all power. All power that exists necessarily exists in this one God. He has the power to do anything that he wants to do. And ultimately he is transcendent. That's the sixth thing. He's transcendent. He's outside of the created order that he is. He's in a different category. So there's two categories of existence. The uncreated category and the created category, right? God alone is in the uncreated category. We, everything else is in the created category and everything is dependent on the one who creates. You get that right out of the gate in Genesis 1.1. The Bible just lays out very clearly a worldview where there is a supreme God who is outside of everything yet involved in everything, created all things, 
and he is supreme. And so right away, we get the rules of the game. It's about God. It is about God above all things. And then we learn that the created things, everything in the created category is dependent upon him and designed by him. So we can see the beauty in everything in creation because we know the God behind it, the laws of nature, the way the planets work, colors and animals, um, each other is designed by God carefully. The, the way that the world works, the way the created things interact with each other is all designed by God and dependent upon God. You take God out of the equation and nothing exists. He's necessary. He is, he is essential. He is sufficient. He's eternal. And everything is dependent on him. The Bible tells us that. It's explaining that the rules of existence are God is at the center. Everything else is dependent and designed by him and for him. A being that predates everything. A self-existent consciousness in the reality that is beyond and behind everything else. And therefore, all things exist in and for God. God is at the center. So that's rule number one for the game, right? God is the creator of all things. Supreme in all things. Glorious in all things. And then we see in Genesis 1, 1 through 31, that he creates all things. And we get this beautiful telling of God over the course of six days creating all things. The first three days are forming days where he creates sort of the canvases that he's going to paint on. And then in the last three days, he fills those canvases with life. You've got forming days and filling days, these different realms, and then filling those realms with animated life, a realm for them to exist in, and then animated life, inanimate life, uh, ecosystems and just glorious creations in those days. And you see this pattern of complementary and necessary binaries. You see matching pairs. You see the sun and the moon, land and the sea. You see um, all of these different complementary pairs. And then in Genesis chapter 2, 1 through 3, so if you skip to that next chapter, look at how God closes out on day 7, this creative work. So this one being who needs nothing outside of everything, supreme out of everything, has decided in his joy to create a world with which he could have a relationship with that world and to enjoy it. And here's what we say, Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. System was complete. His intentions were accomplished. Everything is functioning as it ought to function. And all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And the sense there is that after God has done, he's created this world. He's created this universe. He's done all of these good things. He's declared it good each day. Good, good, good. It meets his approval and he's satisfied in it and he blesses it, which tells us so much about who God is, right? God is a God who has a disposition of blessing and affection and what he thinks, what he thinks is good is good. He is the definition of good. And his assessment, his blessing, his favor is everything. It's the only thing that matters is to be in right relationship, to meet with approval, to have God approve of you and to bless you is at the center of everything. And that's really where we started. That's where all of creation started. That's where all of existence started with God creating out of an overflow of love and affection a world that he could give his approval and his blessing to, and that's the only thing that matters. 
So God created a complete, functional, sustainable system. He's pleased by it and He gives it His approval. And He delights in it and He enjoys it, which is what the point of the created order was for. So if God's the main character, He wants to and desires and has created a world that, that He might enjoy, that He might glory in. And He desires for that creation to glorify Him. So God is the primary character of the Bible and all of existence. Everything is created to worship Him. Everything is created to, to be blessed by Him, to delight in Him. That's all that matters, is to hear God declare His favor upon you and to bless you. That is the essence of heaven. That's the essence of existence. So there we go. The Bible starts with a God who is like this. Powerful, transcendent, necessary, sufficient. The creator of all things and delighting in, in what He has made. So then we get to humanity. That's the second word. So that's it. That's the fundamental reality behind everything else is God, the creator of all things and what he's like. Secondly is human beings, humanity. Humanity we find as we look through this in these first three chapters, glorious but corrupted. The story of humanity is one where they have been created gloriously in his image but been corrupted by sin. Look at Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And here's what it says. Let the Lord, then God said, this is on the sixth day, let us make man in our image. Notice that. In our image, after our likeness. And let him have dominion. So there's a certain identity that comes with humanity that's distinct from everything else. And there's a certain role that God gives humanity, which is dominion, that he doesn't give, over any, give to any other creature that he has made, not even angels are made in his image and likeness and have dominion, the responsibility that God's going to give them. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There we get that complementary binary pair again that God loves to create in. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God is going to fill the earth with his image, and he's going to give some of his authority and some of the responsibility to care for this good creation that he takes so much delight in. He's going to entrust it into some image bearers, a special set of creatures that can have a relationship with him, that image him, that in some sense speak on behalf of him over the world, who rule on behalf of him. This special creation, this special honor, this special relationship. God deliberates among himself in a way. You get the Trinity talking among themselves. Let us make man in our image. And they agree and they decide, yes, we want to do this special act. We want to make a special creation that's a, more like us. Certainly in the creature category, but also somehow also reflecting divine character characteristics. So God deliberates among himself, and then in speaking, instead of speaking humanity into existence, he makes them with his own hands. He digs in the dirt, gets the dirt under his fingernails, so to speak, and he crafts, hand makes a man. And then in chapter 2, hand makes a woman from the substance of the man. And he actually doesn't just declare that they have life, but actually breathes his life into them. It's a very intimate picture there of God breathing into the nostrils of this dirt person, this little mannequin that he's made. He breathes into the nostrils. I don't know if you've ever breathed into someone's nostrils. Don't do it. It's weird. 
But, just, but the idea being is what an intimate picture that God would breathe his own divine life. And so there's something about human life that is distinct, higher, greater than any other animate life on the earth. It's divine breath. Even if that breath stinks in the morning, right? It's divine breath. It's God's own spirit breathed into humanity in this way that they're made in his image to represent him, to know him and to have a special responsibility. They're to be vice regents, imaging him, extending his good, good rule and reign and blessing on, to all places that they go. Genesis 2, if you turn to Genesis 2, 15 through 17, it says this. So God's created this human being. It says the Lord took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And so there's this moral decision that's laid before Adam, that you have responsibility not just to care, not just to image me, but you actually get to determine to some extent the future moral state of this world. He he places such a responsibility on Adam that, that there is... An opportunity to disobey God if one wants to. And God's not unclear about the consequences of it. It's not a trick question. It's a straight up, in a, in a world full of yes, there's just one no. Like anything you desire, anything you want, it's yours. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you one no. And if you break that one no, in a world, in a universe full of yes, you choose the one no and you'll die. You'll break your relationship with me. You will corrupt yourself and you will surely be separated from the one who gives life. So we have this solemn responsibility and yet not unclear. God's not tricking him. God lays out the terms of the deal right in front of him. This, this uh, almost like a covenant laid before him. If you, if you obey me, you can have anything you want. If you break this one command, you'll break everything. It's kind of like leaving the last piece of the puzzle, right? To let your kids come put that last piece of the puzzle in, right? Like, okay, you get this whole world. It's all yours. Every desire of your heart you can have, whatever you can creatively think up, it's an automatic yes from me, right? I have just one no, and it's this. And it's almost like that. You can come put this final piece in the puzzle. If you'll obey me, you'll extend the glory of this garden all over the world. Like if you'll, if you'll just do this one thing, if you'll just avoid even this one thing, you will live in delight for eternity. And it's almost like leaving that piece, the last piece of the puzzle, what Adam and Eve come and do, they just wreck the whole puzzle. God has put together such a beautiful masterpiece and they, in a sense, have the opportunity to put the final piece in just by simply obeying God, by simply avoiding this one thing and they decide that they destroy the whole thing. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is that there is an enemy that comes to Adam and Eve and begins to tempt Eve begins to call out lies about who God is and what he's like. Remember, they're in a world full of yes, right? Anything that they desire, they can have. Like, it's just automatic. Um, they are living in a perfect relationship with God. They've got no sin, no death, no difficulty, nothing, nothing, nothing negative at all. And just this one prohibition, this one small prohibition, and Satan comes in and he says, you know, it's really not fair to God is God really good? I mean, has he really been good to you? Well, yeah, I mean, if she would just think for a moment, and there begins to be this temptation in Genesis chapter 3 where he begins to lure her to change her opinion about God, 
to realize that his favor is maybe not the most important thing in the world. That maybe his blessing is maybe not the greatest reality. That maybe her greatest delight is not being in a right relationship with God, but rivaling God. And then we begin to see that it's almost like she just isn't thinking logically at all. And she begins to see the fruit as more desirable than God. A God who's given them everything. One simple prohibition is all that he has ever said anything to them. And it's for their own good that they avoid it. And yet all of a sudden she can't think of anything but but that one thing. So it says in Genesis 3, 6 through 7, she buys the lies of the serpent. And look what it says in Genesis 3. This wonderful, amazing God. This awesome opportunity. This awesome relationship with God. This perfect humanity. And this great task of filling the earth with people and just, just showing people how, or showing the world how great God is. What a great opportunity. They get to put the last piece of the puzzle in and they fail. Look at Genesis 3, 6 through 7. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, now it's no longer about what God says is good, but what she says is good, right? She wants to define what's good. God has been saying in chapter 1, after everything he's created, it's good, it's good, it's good. And now she's going to be the arbiter of what's good. She's going to decide what she should and shouldn't do. So she's step, stepping into the place of God. She saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So it's not just that she ate this piece of fruit. That's relatively insignificant. It's what her relationship with God is now like, what she, how she sees God, how she sees herself, how she sees the created world. And now she is taking the place of God. She's calling God a liar. She thinks God's holding out on her. There's something greater than God, which is this fruit. <coughs> she took of its fruit and she ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her. He didn't do anything, just stood there. And he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So we find that this ultimate reality, this God, has an enemy named Satan, which is in the created category. It raises all kinds of questions of why God would create one that would become his enemy, but I guess that we're in that category too. The heart of temptation for all of us is in the same thing as to question God's character. Are God's commands really good? Is God really have our best interest at heart? Is he holding out on us? That was the lie that the serpent put in the heart of Eve. And that's the lie that you and I hear whispered to us all the time. Does God really have my best interest at heart? Is what he says is good really what's truly good? Or or I, I think I would be good at picking what's good and desiring to do what I want to do. A mistrust of God, particularly his goodness and the, and our satisfaction in him is at the heart of every temptation. Seeing that the true was good She was defining her own morality, and we want to do that. We want to divide our own standard. And the standard's always right behind us. We're good at judging others. But we're always, we're across the line. We're in the good category, always. You can go on death row, and the line is always right behind me, right? I'm always in the good category. What I did was excusable. So we see that a humanity is now glorious but corrupted. Delight and desire trump reality. What I want is more important than what's true. Right? That's what happened with Eve, and that's true for us, right? We find ways to do things we know are wrong, and we think we deserve it. We think that somehow, because I want it, it's okay, right? So humanity was corrupted in that very first act. 
the approval and blessing of God now have become kind of nice add-ons if you can get them, but not the most important thing. The most important thing is that I feel good about myself and that I get what I want as opposed to pleasing God and having his approval. That's at the heart of the human condition now. Glorious, still made in his image, but corrupted. Genesis 3.24, look, God confronts them. They try to hide. They try to cover it up. They try blaming each other. They try every excuse they can because they still know that behind all of reality is God. You can't really hide from God. Everything's dependent on God. You can't, you can't get away from him. He's the reality behind everything. But they try, and we try, and it's foolish. And so he confronts them, and he judges them, and he judges the serpent. And embedded in it is a promise, which we're going to come to in a second. But he kicks them out of his presence. Genesis 3.24 says he drove the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That just symbolizes a broken relationship with God. You are dead. You are dead. You're spiritually dead. They were spiritually dead the moment that they ate of the fruit. They'd cut themselves off from the source of life. They had rebelled against God. And now they were going to die physically. And now they live in a world full of decay and death and corruption. Because they were given this dominion status, when they fell, the whole world fell. And nothing has been working like it's supposed to. The image falls. It's corrupted. It's marred. It's in rebellion. It's dying and in decay. In fact, it is dead spiritually. But God's goodness and supremacy is still at the heart of everything. He still gives them a promise. For his image bearers to defame his goodness and challenge his supremacy is to, in a sense, begin a decreation process. The world begins to decay. It was built wonderfully on the character and goodness of God. And then humanity turned it to go against that, which inevitably leads towards evil and brokenness and destruction and decreation, which we've seen forever, right? No? Diseases and death and war and hatred brokenness all comes because of humanity's fall made in his image but corrupted glorious but corrupted so we get this sometimes we we think about okay one bite of one piece of fruit led to all of this well yes now if you think about it you know this someone in 2019 sat down at their lunch break and ate a bat that bat had something in it perhaps And the world changed after that lunch, right? A bite of one piece of fruit brought us all crashing. Well, we get that because a bite of one bite of a bat changed our whole world, right? Right? We get that. We have categories for that. The humanity changed when Adam and Eve ate of that fruit and there was a corruption, a disease that was passed down called sin. We were all born into that sin and that disease. And we get this even yesterday as we thought about 9-11, when I, I was in Bible college at the time, and I got up for my 8.30 class, and partway through the class, the professor towards the end of class said, hey, apparently there's been some sort of accident in New York. Plane has hit a building. Let's just stop and pray. We did. We dismissed the class, and then we all went back to our dorm. And in the dorm, the TV was on in the first tower, and it's like, how in the world does that happen? And then live, like 20 of us standing there, see the second plane. And you knew, those of you that were there knew that, like, oh, no, something just changed, Right? It was a weird freak accident until you saw that second plane and then you're like, oh no. And the world changed, right? This is what's happened. Adam and Eve have changed the world. They've changed themselves. 
But they have not changed God. They have not changed God. And God is still the good, gracious, generous, and now they're on the opposite side. They've declared war on God, which is our third word. So God, creator of all things, humanity, glorious but corrupted, which brings us to our third word, which is war. War. Look at Genesis 3.15. In the middle of these curses where God is confronting them and now explaining, he's both prophesying, he's both kind of declaring what their world's going to be like now, that they've broken, and also a curse of going, hey, you're now at odds with me, but there's still this affection in God. He doesn't just immediately obliterate them and start over. Instead, what God does, and this is, this is amazing, because I think I would obliterate the thing. You, you should be happy that I'm not God. I'd be like, you little jerks, and I would obliterate the thing and I'd start over. But God so cherished what he's made and even cherished these rebellious, pass the buck, hide from him creatures that he makes this promise in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That one verse sets the trajectory for the rest of the Old Testament is that God is going to undo the curse by means of the seed of the woman, the offspring of a woman. And we've got this war that's going to happen. Look at that, verse 3, uh, right at the beginning of 15. I will put enmity, war, between you and the woman, meaning the serpent, which represents Satan, the woman, representing God's image bearers, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so we see that there's a war with two sides. There's an a wickedness, there's an evil, and there's those who believe in the promise, those who trust in the promise. So there's going to be good and evil in the world, and they're going to war. And all of humanity is going to be at war against God. The offspring of the serpent is going to be marked by rebellion and destined for judgment. We see that in chapter 4. Cain kills Abel. Why? Because he's godly. We get this war between the two. And look at that for just a second, Genesis chapter 4. So Adam, uh, Adam and Eve, they get kicked out of the garden, but God has made a promise that there's going to be an offspring, there's going to be a snake crusher, there's going to be someone who undoes what the serpent started. And Eve has a son named Cain, and she says something really interesting. She says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, which I think is actually her realizing under the grace of God that maybe the snake crusher is Cain. Like maybe God's going to reverse this thing from the very get-go. That I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Maybe the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And man, our Bibles would be a whole lot shorter, wouldn't it? If all of a sudden the Messiah came at that point. And again, she bore another son, Abel. Abel was a keeper of sheep. Cain worked the ground. They both offer an offering to God, one that's pleasing to God. Abel gives an offering that's pleasing. Cain, one that's not pleasing to God. And Cain, instead of getting right with God, decides that he would give rid of his brother. Verse 6 of chapter 4, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you and you must rule over it. The serpent is right there. The sin that the serpent brought into the world, that your parents brought into the world, will will you declare war on your godly brother? Will you... Live out this enmity, and sure enough, Cain does. Cain gives in to sin, just like his parents did, and kills his brother. And in one generation, you go from one bite of one piece of fruit to one brother murdering another brother. And you begin to feel the war, the war between the godly and the ungodly, 
those who believe in the promise, which Abel was bringing an offering, I think in view of the promise that God will deliver, God will save. And Cain, upset, decides to kill his brother. And so we see this tension, this war that then goes on really through the rest of your Bible. We see it. Enoch bullies everybody, right? In chapter 4, we get this picture of an Enoch who, who is just angry and raging. And he seems to kind of follow the line of the serpent in terms of his disposition. He seems to embrace rebellion and anger. We have Nimrod who makes a name for himself. In Genesis 6, things get to, to such a point that in, in, in a sense the whole world seems to be living the way of the serpent. Chapter 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that, listen to this, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Just total. They never had a non-evil thought. All of them. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Corruption, the way of the serpent leading to destruction, the way of rebellion leading to judgment. But Noah, verse 8, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There's still a promise. And those who trust in the promise, like Noah, will receive salvation. So there's these two things. There's the way of the serpent and there's the way of promise. God has made a promise. And if you'll trust in that promise, there's deliverance from the effects and consequences of sin. If you trust in the promise, if you go the way of the serpent, there's nothing but rebellion and ultimately judgment. We see that. God floods the whole earth, brings judgment on the rebellion that is taken over the hearts. And you just see this enmity, this enmity between God, this enmity with each other. Humanity is at war with God. Humanity is at war with each other, and this, this war is internal. We see that in Cain. Cain, there is a war going on in you between good and evil. If you'll do what was right, you'll be accepted. If you go the way of the serpent, sin is crouching at your door. There is a war within you, Cain. Which way will you choose? And he chooses to go the way of rebellion and judgment. So there's an internal war, and that's really going on in each of our lives. You feel that, don't you? Don't you feel the war going on in you between good and evil in your own heart? You're at war even with yourself. But there's also an external war, right? Abel and Cain are at war with each other. Those who trust in the promise rightly related to God and those who don't. We see that in our world, don't we? And ultimately, there's kind of an eternal war, like eternity is on at stake here. An eternal war. So internal, external, eternal. State of hostility and enmity that humanity has brought into the world. So you have the, the way of the serpent marked by rebellion, destined for judgment, and the offspring of the woman marked by promise and destined for salvation. Noah believes and obeys God. He, Seth calls on the name of the Lord. Enoch walks with God and then is no more. And you see through there. These two seeds, these two types of people, those who trust in the promise and walk with God, those who are marked by rebellion and destined for judgment. We have these two things. The God who exists, just think about this, zoom back a little bit. The God who exists, who created everything with such joy and design and care. He delights, he blesses, he speaks, he gives a commission, he hand makes, he brings And then when they rebel, he makes them a promise. 
And then he keeps that promise, which is what the Old Testament's all about. He's going to continue to pile up promises and he's going to bring them all together in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is a record of how God is going to keep his promise. The seed of the woman that will crush the serpent, someone who will reverse the curse. How will it happen? It will come by a human born of a woman. The rest of Genesis in the Bible traces and unfolds Genesis 3.15. Might be the most important verse in the Old Testament, at least one of them, because it lays out a promise that this God who made everything is not done with this fallen, rebellious world. He will bring judgment. He must. But he also promises to bring salvation. And we're given an opportunity to pick which side we want to be on. We're born on the rebellion side. But we can switch if we'll trust in the promise. If we'll leave our rebellious ways and step into the ways of promise. And watch how the New Testament talks about this. This, this 315, this seed of the woman discussing, uh, um, um, defeating, crushing the head of the serpent. This promise is kept in Jesus and in those who will come to faith in Jesus. Look at Matthew 123. This is actually quoting from a prophecy in Isaiah 7, 14. So you can kind of, there's several layers to this throughout the Bible. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Which points all the way back to 3.15, that the seed of the woman, not the man, will bring the snake crusher, will bring the one who can reverse the curse. And sure enough, God's going to do it without the help of a man through, through a virgin. And he's going to bring a seed of a woman. Way later than anyone thought, maybe everyone thought that this promise was long dead, but God kept his promise, and God himself will come. And his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. God's going to come do the reversing work himself. And he does so in Jesus Christ. Look at 1 John 3.8. And again, just think of Genesis 3.18 or 3.15. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, seed of the serpent. You're just falling right in line with that side of the war. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Okay? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, crush his head, right? So those who will be identified by sin are going to go down with the serpent. The Son of Man came to destroy the works of the devil, to crush his head, and he did. Look at Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. That's, Roman, that's, a, that's Genesis 3.15 language. The God of peace will soon crush Satan, and here's the twist, under what? Your feet. You get to participate in the crushing of Satan by Jesus Christ. Right? He crushes, he crushes Satan on the cross. He bears the weight of our sin. He rises again from the dead to prove that he's God. And he defeats the power of death and sin and hell. He crushes Satan once and for all. And then all who put their trust in him not only move out of the judgment of the serpent, but now get to participate in seeing his destruction. When we share the gospel with other people, we are crushing the head of Satan. When we are loving one another and glorifying God and worshiping him, we get to participate because of our union with Christ in the defeat of Satan. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be upon you. The promise is real and you can step into the promise of Genesis 3.15 through Christ. Revelation 12.17 says, The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's at the heart of it, right? That's Genesis 3.15 language, is that there is this war in the world between humanity and God, 
And God has made a promise that he is going to send a God-man who will come, born of a woman, who will reverse the curse. Satan will strike his heel, but he will crush its head. And if you will trust in the promise of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of Genesis uh, 3.15, then you step into, with Jesus, into the victory that he brings over Satan and the reversal of the curse, the restoration, not just of Eden, but of a new heavens and a new earth. And between now and then, we have not only the guarantee of the promise in our possession through Jesus Christ, but we get to carry out the victory and we'll get to see the reward. We'll get to return to all that God has made, only it'll be even better because we will know God in this way as a redeemer. So do you see how this works? Genesis 1 through 11. This is, this is the ground rules of all of existence. This is the God who exists. This is how creation works for his glory. This is who humanity was designed to be and where it went wrong and how it can be made right through the promise of God in Jesus Christ. So if you want to play the game, if you want to get in on this, you've got to pick a side. The side of the serpent where you just define your own reality over and against God apart from Christ or step into trusting in Christ, trusting God is good, trusting in the provision that he has made and enjoying salvation instead of judgment. So there's two ways to live right up here on the screen. I think it's up there. There's the way of the serpent leading to judgment where you just, you're born automatically there. So just stay the way you are, right? That's the default setting for every human being that's born on the earth. But there is a second way because of the promise of God, the way of promise leading to salvation. We're going to see, we've seen Noah believe in that promise leading to the salvation. We all owe Noah a big high five when we get to heaven. Hey, thanks for obeying God or we wouldn't all be, none of us would be here, right? We're going to see the obedience that follows Abraham. We're going to start watching that next week, that he believes the promise. And God makes, God carries the promise through him. And we're going to see that through Genesis, how God keeps the promise. Will you pick a side? Noah picked a side. He's going to pick the side of promise leading to salvation. We're going to see next week, Abraham, although he fumbles it several times, is going to step into the promise. He's going to trust it. It's going to lead to salvation. And ultimately, that promise is Jesus Christ for us. What he's done for us to destroy the works of the devil, to take our penalty for sin. If we will leave the way of the serpent, leave the way of ourselves, step into that, we will be saved. Every religion sees this problem and offers a solution. There's only one religion where God himself comes and fixes it himself and goes, you would just make it worse. Let me fix it for you. And if you'll receive it, you can have it free, free. Join my team. Escape judgment. Receive the promise. Receive Christ and you'll be saved. Uh, A guy named Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a Russian writer, Soviet dissident in the late 1900s, mid to late 1900s. He said this, if only it were so simple that there were only those evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and we could just separate them from the rest of everybody else. He says it's not quite that simple. The dividing line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Every single one of us is made in his image, glorious in many ways, but fallen and corrupted. It's not just those big bad people out there. It's me. I'm the one that has sinned against God. I'm the one that wants what I want. It's me that wants to render my own judgments and not see God as good and having my good at heart. It's me that wants to try to play both sides, right? I want to join God's team on Sunday and then I want to do what I want throughout the week. And it's not going to work that way. We have to be all in. Think of these testimonies of these two young people today. You can still read it there in your bulletin. They have signed on today 
to leave the way of rebellion and judgment and step into the way of promise leading to salvation. I think it's in 1 John that says that baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience, right? God, would you make me what you intend me to be? An appeal to God. I want to be on your team. I want to be on the way of promise. I want to experience your salvation. I want to leave the way of judgment and corruption. So maybe that's the decision you need to make today as well. Do you walk in the way of the serpent corruption leading to judgment? Or are you trusting in Jesus Christ, what he's done, the promises that he fulfills, the promises that he makes for those who trust in him? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Genesis 1, 1 through 3, even 1 through 11, gives us an introduction to the whole deal. Gives us all the categories that we need, doesn't answer every question and raises a bunch of others. But ultimately, God, we thank you that your word gives us the framework from which the game of existence is played. How to win, how to lose, how we relate to each other and what this is really all about. God, help us to see you at the center of all of it. Help us to hear your word and respond to it. And thank you for being a God who makes promises to rebellious human beings like us. Open our eyes to see it. Help us to receive Christ even in this moment, to trust in him, to to find our delight in him, to find our identity in him and move from the way of rebellion and judgment into the way of promise and salvation. And help us to offer that to others as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.